my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Allison, professor at University of California, San Diego. And they discuss how Allison is growing brains in a lab and what's on the cutting edge of modern autism and genetic research. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So the clickbait title out there is Lab Grown Brains. <laughs> Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So what we do is um, we take advantage of the potency of stem cells. So stem cells are, are cells that we can keep in the lab and we learn how to induce them to specialize in different cell types of the body. And brain cells is my expertise. Um, so we, we find formulas or, or, or recipes that induce these um, stem cells to become brain tissue. So this is a technology that is not new. I mean, scientists have been doing this for a while now. But I would say that in the past um, five to 10 years is when uh, we really learn how to, um, to grow better tissues, meaning that they are more organized, you'll have more cell types, more diversity. And even at the physiological level, these cells start to communicate more or less as uh, the human brain does. Um, so it becomes a very attractive model for us to study the human brain, which is something that as a scientist, we never had too much of these opportunities. We mostly rely on animal models. So that, that stem cell model provides us an, an alternative right now. And from what I understand, stem cells can potentially become any cell or is that false? That is true. They can potentially become any cells. It's just a matter of learning how they do it. Uh, and we know for some cells, but not for all. So that's why uh, what we call regenerative medicine. Um, it's still a very experimental field uh, where we are learning how to do those things. What's the process to take a cell we don't know and figure it out? What's the process you go through? Yeah, most of the time uh, we learn from uh, the animal models because we study the embryology of other, other animals. Most of the time, the mouse um, and we know what kind of factors uh, the mouse body uses uh, to create different tissues. And then we move into the human model and we try to mimic to see if those same molecules uh, would work or not. Uh, sometimes it does, uh, so it's very conserved, but other times it doesn't. So we have to figure out other ways. We have to try different recipes, different molecules, different formulations, different exposure times. So very empirically, to find these good protocols to make all the desirable cell types or tissues that you want. Is there any machine learning type models that help predict this or is it just guess and check for humans? I mean, we are getting better on, on machine learning or even incorporated AI on, uh, on, on how we do it. But I would say that still 90% of the time is uh, trial and error. And then what's the difference between brains and brain organoids? Mm -hmm. The difference, uh, first of all, uh, is, is the size. An organoid is a miniaturized organ. That's, that's the meaning of that word. So it, it reaches like 0.5 centimeter in diameter. So it's a pea size. And the human brain is much larger than that. So we have orders of magnitude differences in terms of the number of cells. Uh, the average human brain has 86 billions of neurons. In an organoid, 
we have about 3 million neurons. So again, orders of magnitude in differences. In an organoid, we don't have all the structures that the human brain does. So we have sometimes different structures, but they are not necessarily organized in the same way because we don't know yet how to do that. And the organoid is not vascularized. The human brain is fully vascularized. You have the nutrients coming through it, and that's why it can expand because you have this uh, vascular system. And also, I mean, it's receiving input from other parts of the body, like the visual system. You are constantly feeding your brain. Uh, an organoid doesn't have all those features. So it's still a very primitive structure, but nonetheless, quite useful for, for some of the questions that we have. Yeah, what is it teaching us? What are you using them for? Now, I'll give you like a, a very clear example from my lab. You might remember in 2015, 2016, there was an outbreak of macrocephalic babies uh, being born in the northeast of Brazil. So nobody knew what was causing that. There is one suspicion that uh, there is this Zika virus that might be infecting pregnant women traveling. I mean, the virus was traveling through the placenta, crossing the placenta and infecting the baby's brain. So that was the hypothesis. But how to prove that? So what my lab was able to do, uh, we used some of these organoids and we exposed them to the Zika virus. And then we saw that the Zika virus was actually killing specific uh, progenitor cells that give rise to the human cortex, creating a macrocephalic cortical layer exactly as it happens in, in those patients. So that was what we call the proof of causation. So we showed that this was the agent causing the outbreak in Brazil, was not something in the environment, was, was the Zika virus. So that's one example. Most of the time, uh, researchers use brain organoids to study uh, the cellular and molecular alterations in neurological conditions. My lab focuses on, on autism as well and several types of malformations. So the, the connection with malformations is very easily to recapitulate in these brain organoids. When, you're, when that stem cell starts to become that organoid, do cells chain in the sense like I can make the stem cell make one cell and then that cell will mature and it can make other types of cells? Yeah. And Joe, I mean, the, the crazy part is that they do it by themselves. So the only thing that we scientists are doing, we are giving them the right environment and a kickstart. And all the rest, all the organization, all the specialization in the different cell types, it's done by the cells itself. So it's a self-organization and it's all genetically pre-coded. So again, I mean, we kickstart the process and then all the genetic information inside the cells tells exactly how the cells should migrate, what kind of cortical neurons should I be, what kind of a connection should I make with my neighbors. So this is all genetically encoded in our very early embryogenesis. So in these stem cells is DNA, and that contains the instructions for how these cells are doing things. Correct. That's awesome. What do we know about how the DNA is like red and actions are performed by the cells. Yeah, so um, we are still dissecting it. I mean, exactly how, how they do it, uh, uh, how they can orchestrate, what kind of genes are uh, involved on those self-organization. So there is so much to discover 
But now that we have the model, we can systematically analyze that. One important information is that I can take these stem cells or I can make stem cells from any person. So meaning that I can do these stem cells from you by reprogramming any cell in your body. For example, we do most of the time from the skin or blood. We just take it to the lab and then we transform these blood cells into the stem cells. And from the stem cells, then we can recapitulate your own embryology or your own neurogenesis. So meaning that the tissue, the brain tissue that I can make contains your genetic information. And by the way, by doing that, for example, with uh, people with neurological disorders, especially the ones that we know the genetics, help us to dissect how those genes can actually lead um, to neurological conditions even later in life. I do lots of research with autism, and sometimes autism in the first year of life, I mean, they, they seem normal. You do, do not see any major alterations. It's a little bit later in life that you start to notice um, what we call the phenotypes or the clinical manifestations of autism. So now we have a model to start learning and even individualize for each person how their neurological problem or condition appears, what causes that, and even more importantly, how to fix and help those people. Yeah, I was drawn to the fact that you did work with autism because one of the very first software projects I had worked on, like one of the first five, was actually for a company that what they would do is they had papers and had these questions and scales of one to 10 and they worked with autistic children and they ran them these tests, you know, throughout the day, they had different classes and tests and things that they would take. Then they would do some sort of like working with them to help reduce the impact of whatever it was they were experiencing. So like if they, if their eyes were fleeting, like eye contact, they had eye contact exercises and they would measure it and it was all paper driven. And that was my first experience in anything with autism because they wanted to take this and, you know, put it on a computer so that they didn't have to collect all the papers to get the money from this, this government or the state or whatever. So that was my, one of my first experiences because I had to go through and like essentially, you know, enter in all this information um, and, and all of these things. And I got to see the different types of ways autism express itself. And it's very different across a lot of people. So because it's so different, how do you sort of identify the root of it? Yeah. So that's a great question. So we start recruiting people with the different clinical outcomes, I mean, some people more severe, some people less severe. And uh, we start by first looking at their genetics. So we know that there is a strong genetic component. So we can sequence their genome, we can read their genome and, and trying to figure out what are the genes that are uh, mutated. And then, I mean, we make a catalog of those mutations and we start comparing the alterations at uh, the cellular level in the brain organoids with the clinical manifestations. So that start, um, I mean, by, by doing that over and over, we are collecting lots of uh, genes. And now we have over a thousand of genes implicated in autism that explain why it's so variable. But again, I mean, by studying one by one, we know exactly what that gene is doing and, and how it might contribute later on, why this one is more severe than the other, because sometimes the perturbations in these very early stages of development are more dramatic in some cases than, than, than others. So that's a um, very low time-consuming experiments, uh, but I think the outcomes are, are, are amazing because you can really tell the function of the gene in these uh, 
very early stages of embryogenesis that otherwise would not have access. I mean, we cannot do experiments in humans, especially in uterus. Uh, so we, we have an inaccessibility to understand how the brain is formed at very early stages. But now creating this brain tissue outside the, the, the uterus, inside the lab, allows me to dissect and to analyze what the cells are doing, both at the molecular level, at the cellular level, and even more importantly, at the network level, how they are communicating to create who you are. What do you know about how cells communicate with each other? Yeah, so neurons um, do that very well. So neurons are very specialized cells uh, that have this ability to pass information one to another. And they do that uh, by creating very specialized structures uh, in their membranes that we call the synapses. So the synapses are the point of contact between two neurons. And lots of these uh, genes that I told you that are implicated in autism, they code for proteins that are exactly there at the synapses. So by having like a malfunctional synapses, you can imagine how you're going to lose information throughout your network because the synapses are not functioning well. It's interesting that in one hand, we have mutations that causes malfunction of the synapses. In another hand, we have mutations that actually causes an overfunction of synapses. So uh, that person accumulates way more information um, than it needs, and it cannot prune it down to have only the essential information. So that's when we start seeing people with these remarkable abilities that are able to memorize lots of things. And this is quite common and quite frequent um, in the autism community. I mean, it's not everyone, but there are some people with these remarkable abilities. And when you check what uh, their brain cells are doing, I mean, this is some of the insights that we are having. They are forcing the synapses to overwork. That's that's unbelievable. It's so it's so neat. You know, aside from this specific conversation, there's so many different things happening in so many different fields. It's like a real pleasure to be alive <laughs> alive at this point in time. And I look forward to, you know, people like you doing work in areas like autism that is going to ultimately help the quality of life for humans with this research. So I, I a lot of respect for you there. We'll take a break from the conversation about the cells and everything. I want to talk a little bit about you as a human. You've accomplished a lot. You're doing really great work to help move humans forward. And it's it's pretty fascinating. My brother and stepmom are both physicians. So I, I grew up around it, but I am not one. And the amount of work it takes to become a you know a physician or a scientist of that level, it's extreme. It's it's extraordinary. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline. A lot of the people that listen to the show. They're listening because they want to grow their careers. They want to improve. They want to become better. They want to learn learn from people who are doing difficult things and doing things well. So I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on how you have been able to get to the level of your career that you've gotten to? Yeah, that's a great question. I I would say that I was always like very intrigued by nature. I always like to to be outside and and, and ask questions and, and also about like common things. Uh, to the point of starting embarrassing the adults in, in, in my family, right? Um, I, I think the first time that I remember that I really apply like a scientific method was when I asked um, someone about light. I mean, well, how can I, and, and I, I, this was probably like three, four years old. How can I push the switch here 
and the light is on. I mean, what happens? Can you explain this to me? And then, of course, I mean, I mean, you ask like a, a lay person um, who have like a difficult time to explain that. And then remember like, well, I have to figure out this by myself, looking into the books and see why I finally figured out. I mean, oh, yeah, that's now I understand how this, there's these electrons, things like that, probably like super high level for 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 my age. But I think w- what I gained there was, well, I mean, if you do your research, you, you end up with an answer that might be the best thing that you can have uh, at that stage. And then, I mean, start applying that for all my life and, and, and everything else. So it becomes like a very critical, rational way of finding the things that you are interested in. And then, I mean, I understand there's lots of years and lots of hard work and, and disciplines uh, to become like either a physician or or a PhD or a, or a faculty in a university. But I would say that for my life, um, I just passed through it because it was so, I was enjoying <laughs> all the moments, all the steps. And I, I didn't feel that it was uh, hard. On the opposite, I always feel that I was doing what I, what I loved. So I think that that helped to uh, reduce the burden. There was moments that were uh, very difficult, all the tests, all the, the content that you that you have to learn. But I would say that this was like a, a minor compared to the, all the resources that I was exposed to, all the fun that I was having by, by doing science and learning about science. So at the end of the day, and that's what I, I tell to, to my students, I mean, you really have to, to love what you do because by doing what you love, you, you make your work as a hobby. <laughs> and then uh, I think it, um, uh, you have fun during the process. Yeah, that's more or less how I view it. That is absolutely the trick to life. To put yourself into something that you love or you're really curious and you're continuously interested in. Like for me with this podcast, like this was not my source of revenue. This was an expensive hobby for two years that has somehow turned into this like company and this media company. It's pretty, pretty crazy. But I was sort of, you know, doing other things while I was doing it. And I just kept doing it, you know, hundreds of episodes and hundreds of episodes and it turned into something. And then I look back and I'm like, honestly, I've worked so hard at so many different things that didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) And this one I just did consistently and it kind of happened. But yeah, I love your energy and your mindset because I see it not a lot. And when I do see it, it helps me realize that like I can be the optimistic happy person even farther into my career. Because I see, to be honest with you, I see a lot of people who are farther on in their career than I am, who like they're good at what they do and they're known for what they do, but they aren't necessarily like, you know, happy and optimistic. They almost seem like eh, a little jaded by it or something. But I love meeting people like you because it restores my faith in the future that I desire. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad. (laughs) So how far are we from being able to create a full-size human brain? You know, I I think on the technical side, I don't think we are that far. And I'll go even beyond. I think that in the next, I would say, 10 to 15 years, we might have not only the brain, but the brain connected with other tissues, kind of a a whole body connected so we can study like an avatar of a specific person having either miniaturized or or even uh, the real size, if we think that is It's important to have a a real size functioning in the lab. So I I think the technology, it's moving fast. And and, and I don't think that this is like a a future that we won't see. Uh, We'll definitely um, experiment that in our lives. So we're going to see those things happening. 
And I say that because of the experience that we have in the past uh, 10, five years, I mean, getting from almost nothing to where we are now, it was amazing. It's, a, it's amazing progress. And, and more and more labs are, are dedicating to uh, this type of stem cell work. So I see a future that's very near where we can have those answers. And then there are consequences of that as well. You said, well, what about the whole size brain? Sometimes, I mean, you don't want the whole size because it takes more resources, right? I mean, the, uh, the organoid is, um, the beauty of that is that when I make an organoid from a person, I don't make just one. I make thousands of organoids. So I can do different experiments with them because they are tiny. So now if I start moving into uh, the, a bigger size, I can answer some questions, but I don't think I'll have the same throughput to do all the uh, experiments and conditions that I would like to try. So there are gains and losses by increasing the size of those structures. Now, for me to understand a little bit better. So you said that there's been a large increase in the past five years of advancements. How long have you been studying and, and practicing in this field? It's hard to put like a, a date on it because again, I mean, w- when, when you are inside this field and this has been evolving slowly, you're always part of that. So I would say like 20 years. Okay. But then I mean, when we start having like tissues that really work like the brain, things like that, I would say 2014, 2015. And since then in 2019, we start generating what we call a brain wave which is exactly what you get uh, by placing the electrodes uh, in an electroencephalogram. Uh, you've probably seen like people with epilepsy or when you go to a hospital, they put electrodes in your brain, they record all these different frequencies. These are all the communication within your brain. So in 2019, we made these brain organoids generate the same type of oscillations that we see in the brain. To me, that was a major milestone because before that, we have the structures, but not the function. After 2019, we start having the function of these uh, organoids. So I think it was quite fast. Like in, in, in a couple of years, we were able to optimize the structure to gain the functionality of these structures. And this is, um, this is true for the brain, but it's is, is also true for other systems. Um, two years ago, someone, another lab, was able to create insulin from a, a pancreas organoid. So before that, we had the pancreas, but they were not producing insulin. So now we have a pancreas that produces insulin, so it becomes functional. So that's, that's what I mean, that we are accelerating uh, the pace of discovery in the past uh, five to 10 years. How do you approach, like ethics is always a big conversation. How do you even begin to think about it? Yeah, so the studies with uh, the brain tissue uh, and brain organoids, they really touch this ethical uh, concerns. Uh, and I think the major concerns that people see is what if uh, those brains start to become self-aware and have some level of consciousness, right? So sh- how should we treat them? Should we treat them as a person? Should we treat them as a, a research animal? Or should we give them like a different moral status? I think eventually these organoids are becoming more and more complex that I think is going to be inevitable for them to reach some level of consciousness or or even self-aware. But I don't think they deserve the same moral status as a person. So we have to agree in there, I mean, what to do with them. And that's why we do this research in collaboration with the ethicists and 
philosophers of the mind. So we are always in constant check. Uh, where is this technology? Should we discuss this more? Should we bring more uh, input from society? So I'm doing this every two years. I organize like a meeting where we discuss those things. And right now, I don't think we have uh, to worry about it because they're not in that level of reaching self-consciousness, but it might be in the future. And then we'll have to agree on um, how do we work with them? Because I think most people agree that uh, this is a very important research tool tool that can help us um, to create new treatments for uh, millions of people that suffer from neurological conditions, psychiatric disorders, things like that. So the benefit to humanity is very clear. Any lay person will agree with that. But then, I mean, we have these um, the ethical concerns. How should we deal with that? And there is no clear answer right now. So this is something that is not in the philosophy books. I talk to my uh, friends that are philosophers of the mind. They have been studying the human mind for a while, animal minds, things like that. And when I talk about brain organoids, they pause and they said, well, we never thought about that. <laughs> so this is, uh, we are bringing something new to the philosophy books as well. Yeah, well, there's a lot of hard problems in there. The first being, we don't even have a great definition for consciousness. <laughs> yeah, we don't even we don't even know a whole lot about it. But I could definitely see how you could be making maybe blood cells or pancreas cells, and people don't have that concern. But the moment you go into a brain, which we imagine, you know, is where consciousness is coming from, that starts to raise those. But you know. For me personally, where I'm at with my ethics stuff for the little bit that I know about this is I'm an explorer, man. I'm an adventurer. And a lot of these things, like if you look at the federal government with like things like seatbelts and, and, and car safety ratings, these things happen in hindsight, right? First, you get the car, then the accidents start happening, then you figure out how to mitigate the accidents. And that tends to be how things flow. So there is a whole entire camp of people that will say, we shouldn't be playing God, we shouldn't even go over there, we shouldn't even be doing that. I'm not in that camp. I'm in the camp of, let's push the boundaries of what's possible. And then, you know, in my experience, people like you and and these people that are pushing the boundaries, they're moral people. And if they start to see something that's like not right, they're going to start bringing it up to their peers, and we all know scientists and how they rip each other apart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, I don't think there's any like conspiratorial aspect to it. But you know, then you figure it out. Like if you are working in your lab next week and you start noticing, like you have a brain computer interface hooked up to one of these organoids, and all of a sudden, like text or speech starts coming out of it, and they're talking to you, like, "What's going on, Allison?" You're going to be like, "Hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> we need, we need to, we need to have a conversation about this with some other peers and figure out what we do about this." You know? Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, I mean, history, uh, science history has shown the same things. I mean, blood transfusion. You can imagine like many people didn't want to receive blood from other people, even when they are super sick. Uh, but then, I mean, you start um, showing that, well, this can save your life. And then, yeah, I mean, your concern kind of reduces uh, organ transplantation. There was a resistance in the beginning. Oh, I don't want uh, like a heart uh, or a tissue uh, from another dead person in me. Well, I mean, I don't think people who needs now think that way. And that helped us uh, to really move forward with the technology. So the resistance is normal for something new, for something that uh, people are not used to. But as soon as you start proving that um, it's useful and it's saving lives, 
yeah, then I think the tendency is that um, to put aside any of these um, concerns. And I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm always curious, what's the business side of things? What are you getting paid to do? Or is it like a research grant? Or are you trying to achieve some sort of outcome and solve some problem? How does the money aspect of, of all of this work? Yeah, so I'm involved with uh, several companies uh, as well. Those companies, for example, one of them is uh, using these brain organoids to test the specific drugs or gene therapies for different neurological conditions that have like a, a genetic cause. So they do a screening, they look for uh, new potential treatments that are better, that are more efficacious, that are personalized. So that's that's one of uh, one company that that's making money doing that. Um, so instead of screening in a, in a mice, we are screening already um, these new treatments in a in a brain organoid that that we think is more relevant for neurological conditions. So that perhaps the next treatment for schizophrenia, the next treatment for autism might come from a brain organoid rather than from an animal model. So that's one side. I have another company, for example, that uh, is using this technology um, to expand uh, the way we grow cells and specialize the cells for other types of uh, tissues. For example, meat that you can create from, from the stem cells. Instead of making like brain cells, we are making muscles from different species. So maybe by doing that, we can control, precisely control the nutrients, the amount of fat and protein that you have in your meat. And we do that without killing any animal. So that's another way that um, you can see on, on the commerce, commercialization aspect. But most of the companies in that area is really looking on the therapeutic side, try to help people with diseases that have no cure right now. So I think that's, that's where at least the first wave of companies using this type of technology is focusing on. I have gotten to talk to, uh, I think about two or three years ago was the first time I had a conversation about it with someone who was growing uh, salmon and they were only growing the part of the salmon that you would eat and they were trying to get the cost down. So they had gotten it down from like $200,000 an ounce to like 50000 in like a year or two and then they were trying to get it down to market price so that you can just have this salmon. And he was sharing with me that there were competitors that were doing it with chicken and there's like different companies popping up doing it for different types of food. And they like, a company will pop up and focus on one specific type. And there was this one that had done chicken they were trying to get it like certified, like we have the USDA here or whatnot, some sort of regulatory passing, but they found in another country they let them through. And so at this certain restaurants, you would get this chicken and it would be lab grown chicken. Yeah. And I thought that that was fascinating that that was already out there in the wild happening today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, most of those companies, the major goal is really to push the cost down because, I mean, we are still like in a, in a scale that it's kind of gourmet scale, but we really want to to produce that like as Gatorade, right? Something that you can just have available for everyone. And I, I think this might help uh, lots of prob problems with the ecosystem in, in, in the world. So the impact of something like that, it's huge. Where do these stem cells come from? Are you just taking them out of yourself and growing these brain organoids or <laughs> people stealing them from some other place? Where do you get them? We take from cells that are coming from a skin biopsy or sometimes from blood or sometimes even for the milk tooth, 
that you can give it to me and I can extract uh, some cells. It doesn't matter the, uh, the donor cell type, the oranges of the cells. Once I have those cells in my lab, I can use what we call cellular reprogramming to convert whatever cells I have into the stem cells. And they capture your genome. So the genome is preserved. I just change the nature of the cells. Instead of a specialized cell, now I have a cell that uh, is naive. It's a stem cell, and I can, again, manipulate and, and grow tones of it using the technology that we have. Where do you get them from? Like, people donate this? We recruit people most of the time, I mean, uh, because we have our research going. For example, with autism, first I started recruiting the families. Uh, but I always wanted to, uh, to study profound autism. These are more severe type of autism. And the problem that I had was um, the family said, well, we want to participate because we want you to uh, study our, our child, but uh, it's very hard for us to go to your lab. And then I, I had like an idea. I said, okay, well, maybe, maybe the lab can go to you. So we create a kit um, where we have um, a, a, a little bit of a media or a container where you can put the milk tooth. And we, we call that the Tooth Fairy Science Kit. And then through social media, we start sending this Tooth Fairy Kit to all the families with autism. And we are targeting this pediatric population. They are losing their tooth. And as soon as they lost it, uh, they just put in the tube. It has the media that keeps the cells alive. And then they will send it, these uh, vials to us. And that's how we would collect the cells. Of course, I mean, they have to agree. There is a consent form where we explain the science. They have to sign. They have to agree to participate on, on the research. But that's how we, we start collecting cells. And it was so successful. I don't think any families refused to do that. On the opposite, they all wanted uh, to participate. And in the first year, I think we, we collected like over 3,000 uh, samples that we didn't have the capacity to actually do it. So we have to slowly down and, and, and stop collecting more and more cells. So we have plenty. That is so cool. And then let's imagine that you, you, know, you figure out the root of this autism and you're like, you know what's causing it specifically. Do you think it's something that like cells can be reprogrammed when they're embryos or when they you know, are born? Or do you think it's something where you would just know how to identify it and be able to like scan the existing eggs, you know, maybe select certain ones that won't have it for in vitro or, or something of that nature? Yeah, uh, Joe, that, that's a great question. Uh, but before I answer that question, I want to make sure that we are talking about the severe types of autism. Okay. Because this population is so heterogeneous that there are people that are high functioning, so they have jobs, they have families. They don't even see autism as a problem. Sometimes they see it as a superpower that they have. So this population, they don't want to be treated. They, they, they don't want to be cured of anything. They don't think that um, uh, they have anything that are problematic. Um, so we're not targeting those, just for the audience um, to be very clear on that. Uh, so we are targeting the ones that are severe. So we are talking about people that have hundreds of seizures per day, people that cannot walk or talk, that cannot feed themselves, that needs one-to-one -one help uh, for life. So these are people that are very uh, dependent on um, the community, on their parents. And when their parents are not there, so what should we do? Um, so we are targeting those people. We want to make them as much independent as possible. 
So they and their families, um, not only they seek for a treatment, but they deserve a better treatment than, than what's out there. So having said that, having like clusterized uh, my target um, to your uh, question, the answer is yes. Uh, all the data that we have, both with animal models as well as the brain organoid model, suggests that if you know the genetic alteration and if you correct uh, this genetic alteration in the cells, you basically revert back to what we call a typical or, or a normal development. So, and this is what we are trying to do in people right now because it's, it's, it's much easier to do it in a, in a lab, both in animals or in the organoids. But now moving to a clinical application, that is a challenge. Again, because the human brain is so big, um, we have to target uh, so many cells. And there are certain things that we can do with mouse, such as genetic manipulation, that we cannot do with uh, a human that is already born. So the challenge now is how can we translate the applications or the treatments that we, we know it might have a beneficial contribution to that person? How can we actually deliver it into clinics? And that's, that's where some of these companies are trying to, to bridge. They're taking the, the technology that we have in the lab and they are bridging to take it to the clinical side, performing clinical trials, learning by doing these clinical trials how to best implement this type of technology. That's where we are right now. What under a microscope or through a test allows you to see that it's autism like across the board? Like what's the unique thing that they have in common that's different from somebody who doesn't have that at all? Yeah, so there are certain things that seems to be a conversions, meaning that they all have uh, in some level some of these, uh, uh, these alterations. When you look at the cellular level, usually the neurons or these uh, specialized brain cells, they have a different morphology. So the morphology already has an indication that there's something different there. Even uh, sometimes the size of the cell is, is slightly different. So we're talking about sometimes, I mean, a 10, 10%, 20% differences here, but it's enough to, to place them in a category of, well, this is not going to be your neurotypical development. There's something that it might go uh, uh, wrong here. The other thing is what I mentioned to you, uh, the synaptic contact, the way they transmit information, either uh, malfunctioning or functioning super well, that is not normal as well. So there is no pruning, things like that. So that's usually are the two things that we see that are quite common among this population. Okay. And so the neurons and their transmission abilities and the characteristics of those, how do you test those? Ah, that's a good question. So um, we can place these organoids on top of what we call a multi-electrode array. And uh, similar to an EEG where you place the electrodes in your skull, here we are placing the electrodes directly uh, inside uh, the organoid. So we can capture the electrical activity and by looking at this electrical activity, we can tell how good they are uh, on making the uh, synaptic contacts. So that's one way to do it. There are other techniques that are more uh, precise. You can actually go inside a single neuron and stimulate that neuron and see how it passes the information to the next one. So you can do that as well. And then, I mean, uh, there are techniques now that you can paint one cells or you can paint uh, the synapses with uh, fluorescent dyes and you can just visualize them. 
Um, then you can quantify how strong, how big they are. So there are things that you can do uh, under the microscope using like fluorescent dyes. That is so cool. And so you had all these people that are affected by this send you like teeth and things like that. Well, how do you categorize it? What's the scale that the medical community uses to to describe the extremeness of the autism? Because I mean, I'm sure you don't treat every tooth as the same because you have to know like how it's expressed, right? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing is uh, look at the clinical side, right? I mean, if the clinical side or, or, or the symptoms of the patient is really dramatic, uh, then, I mean, you know that there are something more severe going on. And sometimes that's how we select the, the patients for our research. We just look for the ones that have what we call endophenotypes. So they are they're not, not nonverbal or they have a strong repetitive behavior or they are very aggressive. So we select for those to cluster and trying to correlate with our findings on, on the most severe types. That's how we do it most of the time. There are other types of research that are more unbiased towards who are the person, I mean, who, who are the people. So we, we don't have that information. We just look for their genomes and, and, and their cells. And then we, we try to anticipate, based on that, how the person would behave. So these are the two types of research that we do. That is so cool. It's it's hard, I think, for like a lay person, right? Like me, like I'm not really into it. But then when I was doing the prep for this call, the team was like, well, there's, you kind of have to be really clear about things. And so I was so happy though that you were able to have this conversation with me and help me have a better understanding of of this world and how the technology is is growing and improving. So, so thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to get out there to the world that we haven't yet covered? I think we covered it all. I'll just highlight the benefits of this research, which is, I mean, really to help people. And I think what most scientists wanted to do is to have this kind of a contribution. So that's that's my dream. Is the dreams of my colleagues is really to move everything that we learn from the bench side to clinics. Uh, so that's where we want to make like the most of this technology. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.